0: We come now, brethren, to the preaching of the Word. I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Peter and the first chapter, the book of 1 Peter and the first chapter. I will be reading aloud and then preaching this morning on verses 3 through 5 with special attention on verse 5. I invite you to read along silently as I read aloud this morning. beginning in verse 3 through verse 5. Here Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this privilege to gather this morning together as your people to worship you and to hear your word preached. And we would ask now for the work of the Holy Spirit, that he would be our guide and our teacher. He would reveal to us the beauties and the wonders of your word. We would ask, O God, that we would have receptive hearts to hear it, and believe it, and we pray that the Holy Spirit would apply it to our lives in such a way that our thinking and our conduct would be transformed, that we would bring honor and glory to you. For we ask all these things in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. This morning, brethren, we want to continue and conclude our brief examination of God the Father's work in our salvation. God the Father's work in our salvation in fact i have entitled this sermon this morning praise to god the father part three i want us to look at verse five in particular which concludes this section that we've been considering for the past few sundays but before we analyze and apply verse five let me briefly summarize what we have seen and learned about the work of the Father in our salvation from the prior verses. First, we have learned that the work of the Father really should be considered by us first in any biblically ordered consideration or discussion of God's work of salvation. For our salvation began with the Father's love for us as his elect People, And out of that everlasting love, God the Father decreed in his eternal purpose that we should be saved, and it pleased the Father to choose and to ordain the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, according to a covenant made between them to purchase our salvation through his own incarnation and death. And so even before the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf, there was the eternal electing love and the tender compassion of God the Father, who commissioned the Lord Jesus Christ to come as our surety and our Redeemer and to deliver us from our sins. Then second, we learned that our salvation was a direct result of God the Father's great mercy a direct result of God the Father's great mercy. For it was not in response to anything good in us that God acted towards us, but rather he acted out of his own will and initiative, out of his own good pleasure towards us. For God the Father is by nature a perfectly merciful God. He desired for reasons that were entirely his own to make you and I the recipients of his divine mercy. And of course, in knowing this, you and I as believers in Christ should be greatly humbled. for we are not saved because we deserved God's mercy or because we merited God's mercy, but because God sought us out in mercy And in saving us, he made us debtors to mercy. Then thirdly, we learn that God's mercy towards us is most clearly evident in the fact that he has caused us. And notice the language there. He is the sole cause of this. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For prior to our salvation, You and I had no spiritual life prior to our salvation. You and I possessed no living and abiding hope. But because of his merciful act of creating new spiritual life within us and because of his placing within us a living hope, which is centered in and guaranteed by the same resurrection power that raised Christ, You and I, as the recipients of God's mercy, now live and exist in hope for him. Then last Sunday, we learned that as a part of our hope, we look forward to a great spiritual inheritance. A great spiritual inheritance, an inheritance that is far superior and far more glorious than any earthly inheritance that we could imagine, in that it is imperishable, it is undefiled, and it is unfading. Of course, I suggested to you last week as we looked at verse 4 that it is superior in all of these ways because it is centered in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our inheritance. He is the one who is indestructible, untainted, and unstained by sin. And all glorious and unfading. It is also for this reason that our future inheritance is now being kept or reserved in heaven for us, for that is where Jesus is now, in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And Christ himself makes us co heirs and joint heirs with him because we are united with him or to him by faith. And thus, everything, brethren, everything that has to do with the planning and the performance and the permanence of our salvation, which are all mentioned in some sense in verses 3 through 5, all of it, God the Father initiated and accomplished, and he should be praised for it. He should be acknowledged and praised for it by the people of God today. In fact, if we fail to praise God the Father for these things, we are of all creatures the most ungrateful, given what God the Father has done for us, given what we have received by grace from Him. And yet, brethren, there is one more aspect of our eternal salvation which God the Father provides for and has taken care of for us, and that has to do with the preservation of our salvation, or let me say it this way, our preservation in grace until we receive our final salvation, or until we experience our full redemption at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For when Jesus returns on that great day, we who are his will be fully and finally changed into his image and we shall be just like him. But until that day, you and I will, as the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith states in chapter 17 and paragraph 1, we will be faced with many violent storms and floods in this life. And we say amen to that. We know that to be true. We'll be faced with many violent storms and floods in this life that will rise up and beat against us without mercy, and we will be repeatedly assaulted by many temptations, both from within and from without, and no doubt our adversary will seek to devour us as well. Therefore, unless God the Father preserves us, all of us will surely perish. For just as none of us have the spiritual power and the durability in and of ourselves to keep ourselves in the faith, none of us, brethren, have the power in and of ourselves to ensure our perseverance, our preservation to the end. None of us know only God whose almighty power is limitless can give us the grace and the ability to persevere spiritually. Only God can safeguard us and keep us through the physical and spiritual assaults that come against us continually. Only God can ensure that you and I actually receive the spiritual inheritance that Peter refers to back in verse 4. And praise to God the Father, dear brethren. But Peter assures us here in verse 5, the last verse of this section that we've been considering, that God makes such provision for us. For in speaking to those who are being saved, in speaking to those who are in possession of the blessings that he has described in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1, Peter describes them and us as those who are by God's power being guarded. Notice this language being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And this morning, I want us to carefully consider what this verse, verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 1, is teaching us about. For I want us to see and to be assured that it is possible, it is entirely possible for you and I to live with a steadfast confidence that we shall never totally or finally fall away from a state of grace. To live in absolute confidence each, each and every day that we will be saved eternally by Christ who wants us to live without fear and apprehension of perishing. For while such spiritual competence may seem to be misguided or even arrogant to some men, God the Father would have us to know these things. God the Father would have us to be confident of these things, as verse 5 here proves conclusively that our final perseverance in the faith is His work. It is His work, for our perseverance is not a matter of whether you and I have the ability to hold out or to hold on, but rather it's really a matter of whether God the Father has made spiritual provision for us. It's really a matter in a theological sense as to whether God the Father is firmly resolved to carry out his own eternal unbreakable decree to ensure that those whom he has chosen for salvation will in fact be saved or whether his decree can be opposed or overcome. There are some, unfortunately, today who suggest that his decree can be Undermined, opposed, or overcome. Let me just say first that to even suggest that God's plans can be opposed, to even suggest that God's plans can be circumvented or overcome is to undermine not just the whole doctrine of salvation, but the whole system of doctrine that is set forth in Holy Scripture regarding God and his work. It is to throw that whole system in chaos, if we suggest that. For a God who cannot ensure that his own sovereign will is carried out, a God who cannot honor his promises to save his people, regardless of what they're being faced with, is not a God who is worth serving. Not a God who is worth serving. Yet there are many today who claim to be Christians who promote this kind of Theological chaos, they say that God wills the salvation of all without exception, but then they go on to say, sadly, that unless man finds a way to persevere in the faith, unless man finds the resolve and the energy to move forward and to last in the faith, he cannot be accepted, nor will he persevere. And so some clearly place salvation and the perseverance of one's faith into the hands of man. And they insist that the outcome solely depends on what man is capable of doing. Beloved, this type of theological confusion about God, about the nature of salvation and true spiritual perseverance is the cause of much outright disbelief and discouragement today. Therefore, we need to know for certain from the testimony of Scripture itself what God the Father does in powerfully ensuring that his people persevere in the faith until their final redemption. What does God the Father do? Well, notice here in verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 1 that God, by means of his own almighty power, guards them. Guards them. He safeguards them. For those who are being saved, the Apostle Peter writes here, are those individuals who by God's power are now being guarded. And of course, to fully understand the importance of this statement, we we need to highlight two things. First, we need to highlight the source of the spiritual power that guards us. And then, second, what being guarded within this context means. For unless we know who is performing this work in us and what this work involves, we might be tempted to see it as our own work. We might fail to see how impossible it is for us to perform it. And yet I trust, dear brethren, that all of us here this morning who are Christians have the spiritual sense and the spiritual discernment to see this morning not just from this verse, but also from the the witness of all of Scripture and the witness of our own experience that the source of our perseverance, the power behind whatever desires we have to carry on the Christian life comes from God, comes from God and God alone. For it is God, Paul stated in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13, who works within us, or who is working in us to will and to do of his own good pleasure. And thus, any thoughts that our final perseverance depends upon us, or that it hinges in some way upon our choices or our actions, is to totally misunderstand the true nature of the work that God is doing within us. Not only that, but it is to seriously misjudge the the full extent of our spiritual weakness. For you and I can't be the source or the power behind our perseverance because we do not have the spiritual will or the ability to do anything to promote our own spiritual progress except by God's power working mightily in us. Of course, this also speaks to our inability to spiritually guard ourselves as well. For unless we are guarded, literally safeguarded by God himself from the forces of evil outside of us and from remaining sin within us, we cannot hope to persevere. And yet Peter assures us here in verse 5 that God the Father is now actively at work. He is actively at work guarding us. Not surprisingly, many commentators have posited that behind Peter's words here in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5 is the image that Jesus conveyed to Peter and to the other disciples of God safekeeping his people by concealing them in his own hand. In fact, Brother Dale quoted that passage from John chapter 10 this morning saying, that very thing, that God conceals his children, he guards, he safeguards his children in his own hand, a a mighty hand that no enemy, physical or spiritual, is capable of prying open, a powerful hand that will never release its protective grasp on those whom God has sovereignly chosen to safeguard. For as Jesus declared in John 10 and verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than I, and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. Surely, beloved, this is the same idea as I said a few moments ago that Peter is conveying here in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. For by saying here that we are by God's power being guarded, Peter is assuring us, that we are in God's protective hand. We are being kept safe. We are being carefully watched and shielded. For while we are not isolated from all that might tempt us, while we are not isolated from every storm and trial that might test us, because there are storms and trials that test us, God has nevertheless set his guard over us. He has decreed that we will not be ultimately overtaken. He will not let us stray too far from the path that he has appointed for us. He will protect us from those dangers that would otherwise destroy us and bring us harm. And how does God the Father keep guard over us? Well, notice that Peter states here in verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 1 that the Father does so Through faith. Through faith. And of course, this is a remarkable statement because it reveals that the faith that we now possess as believers in Jesus Christ is not only God's gift to us in salvation, but it is also the means through which God keeps us and preserves us. It is that faith that overcomes. For when God gives us faith, He gives us that which Justifies us. You know this, that which gives us a righteous standing before God. And because we are in possession of justifying faith, we can be certain that we can enter into God's presence at any time. We can be certain that we will always be accepted by God in the beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our true righteousness. For as the Apostle Paul stated in Romans chapter 5 and verses 1 and 2, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in grace. We are surrounded by grace. We stand accepted because of that grace. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because of that standing. And so this faith that we've been given by God grants us an entrance. It secures for us a gracious and peaceful standing with God. What a great thing that is, a peaceful standing with God. And yet, through this language that Peter uses here in 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 5, Peter also reveals to us that this faith which God gives us is used by him as a spiritual means of preserving and guarding us as well. For according to Scripture and according to our own confession of faith, God gives you and I the precious faith of his elect. The precious faith of those he has elected by grace. And this faith though it is constantly and violently assailed and assaulted from without, shall never fail or falter. Never fail or falter. In fact, to quote directly from the 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 17, paragraph one, it is a faith that fastens us to Jesus Christ. I want you to, hear that language, it fastens us to Jesus Christ. So when the winds come and the waves come and the waters come and the trials come, we are fastened tightly to him. He is our foundation. He is our rock. Because our faith is in him and he is our rock, our faith endures to the very end. In fact, it cannot fail. It, it cannot give way. It cannot cease to function by its very nature, given that its life and vitality is in God. And no doubt this is the reason why the confession of faith also declares in the last paragraph of chapter 17, that even when this faith wavers, it will ultimately be strengthened and renewed. And that's encouraging to hear as well, because there will be times when our faith wavers. And yet, ultimately, by the grace of God, even when it wavers for a season, it shall be, because of the trial and the grace of God working through it, a means of renewal and a means of strengthening. For our confession of faith says this, Though they, the elect, may, through the temptation of Satan and the world and the continual striving of corruption within them, fall into fearful sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure, grieve his spirit, have their own hearts hardened and their consciences wounded. Yet, I love that word, yet they shall, note this, renew their repentance and be preserved through what? Faith. Through faith in Christ to the end. Because the faith, brethren, that you and I have received, as true believers in Jesus Christ, is a prevailing, persevering faith. It can, in fact, it can be no less than that and still be God's gift. God does not give us a gift that is faulty, a, a gift that cannot fulfill its purpose. It is that means that God has given us and placed within us to hold us fast, to fasten us tight to the Lord Jesus Christ, our inheritance. And therefore, if we possess true saving faith as a gift from God, it stands now as clear, irrefutable evidence of God's intention to save us save us. It serves as indisputable, undeniable proof that we shall persevere for, again, our spiritual perseverance is not dependent upon us. It is not measured by the amount of effort or work that we put forth, nor is it in our power to ensure, but rather it is guaranteed today by the presence of genuine overcoming faith within us. My question for each of us today For this morning is, do we have this precious faith of the elect? Do we have this prevailing, persevering faith, which is a gift from God? May we pause in our own hearts in worship this morning and praise God the Father for these truths. But to also ask ourselves if we be of the faith, if we be of this true faith that perseveres for His work in keeping us and preserving us is by faith. Then lastly, brethren, we can be certain that we will persevere to the end. That we will come into the full possession of our spiritual inheritance through faith. Because what we are now persevering towards is not a state that depends upon our human efforts or human works. But it is, as Peter states here in verse 5 of 1 Peter 1, a salvation or a state of deliverance that God has decreed that is ready to be revealed. Ready to be revealed in the last time. And of course, it's important for us to understand this. For as long as we see our future salvation or deliverance as something that we must be struggling for, or in some sense preparing ourselves for, we, we fail to see that God the Father has already made provision for it. Already made it. We will miss the fact that salvation has already been decreed and provided abundantly for us in a way that is ready to be revealed. Needless to say, if it is ready to be revealed, then we must not think that we can somehow postpone or hinder our salvation's intended outcome. For while it is possible for us through our neglect of the means of grace to make our progress in grace uncomfortable or to make it an uncomfortable process, nevertheless, the salvation that has been provided for us by God the Father lacks nothing. It is completed. It's presently ready to be manifested in the fullness and fulfillment of God's purposes. And, of course, it is ready because the work of our salvation has already been completed. It's not that Jesus did some of the work and now you and I have to do the rest so it is completed, so it is ready for the last day. No, it is now ready. It is already completed for that time. In fact, it has long been completed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who now sits on the right hand of God the Father, and has every right to claim his inheritance, his inheritance, which is us, the redeemed. Yet Peter informs us here at the end of verse 5 that this salvation, which is ready, which is lacking nothing, which needs nothing from us in order to be complete or perfected, will not be manifested to us in its fullness until the last time or until the appointed time of God. Referring no doubt to the time of Christ's second coming at the consummation of all things, when our faith shall be made sight, when we shall see Jesus Christ as he truly is. Of course, there is great wisdom on God the Father's part, beloved, in appointing the fuller revelation of our salvation at that future time. There is great wisdom in God revealing our salvation to us to coincide with the revealing of his dearly beloved son, the Lord Jesus. In fact, all that the father does, all that he has appointed to be done in the future is clothed and characterized by his unfathomable wisdom. It is distinguished by his fatherly care over us and in doing what is best for our future. Therefore, beloved, while we are waiting for this salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, let us be completely assured that it is worth waiting for. It is worth waiting for. Let us be assured that when it is revealed, we will be be taken back. We will be totally awestruck. By what God the Father has prepared for them that love him in sincerity. What he has prepared for us simply because he first loved us. Oh dear brethren, let us not miss Peter's wise insistence here in verses 3 through 5 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Which we've now finished considering. That our praise for God the Father should be offered first should be offered first for what we have in Jesus Christ. And we will be considering, we will be examining in the weeks ahead what we have in Christ and why we have these things and what they are. But we must first consider that all that we have is because of the Father. Every good gift, every perfect gift from the Father of lights. So let us praise the Father. Praise God the Father, who is, as we have seen this morning, our preserver and the rock of our safety, the one who protects and keeps us to the end, fastened tightly and securely to his Son. May he, God the Father, receive all the glory through the preached word this morning to our lives as we live out the truths of what we hear. May we this morning praise the Father for his loving care for us. May we this morning praise the Father for that salvation that he's freely given to us by mercy. Oh, how can we but praise? Let us praise him in the strength that he gives us. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for all that you've done for our salvation. We thank you for these wonderful spiritual benefits that we've been considering in verses 3 through 5 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Help us to realize this morning that they're all from your hand, Father. That you have graciously provided them out of your mercy and compassion for us, out of your fatherly care. And who are we to refuse? to express our gratitude to you. Who are we to refuse, to acknowledge that they are from you? We would be most ungrateful, selfish children to think that we had any part in them, that we earned them or merited them. No, we are the recipients of divine mercy. Help us to understand these things today. And may that understanding affect us in profound ways. For if we truly understand that we are the objects of mercy, we will not be proud, we will be humble. We will not assume that we can do things in our own strength, but we'll be completely dependent upon you. We will not pretend for a moment that we will have anything to do in the ultimate realization of our salvation and its fulfillment. But we will recognize that all things unfold according to your plan, according to your purposes, and that your plan and purpose for us Is good. So bless us today as your people. Give us a grace. Encourage our hearts. Turn our hearts and our focus this morning to you, Father. As revealed in Scripture, as revealed through the work of your Son, that we might see your loving and tender nature, that we might see your tender mercies, that we might see that when we were lost and undone, you Sent your son to be our mediator and our surety that we might trust in him and know what it is to be the sons of God. Bless us today with these aware uh, realizations and this awareness that we might bring honor and glory to you, that you might receive that glory that you so deserve from your people. We ask these.